Listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast, where we explore traditional tabletop and live action role playing games through the lens of horror. A special thank you to our Patreons for helping make this podcast possible. Settle in, Thin Bloods, grab a drink in your favorite set of dice, and let the darkness consume you. Excellent. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special virtual horror con edition of Gehenna Gaming Interviews. Today, I have the personal extreme pleasure of interviewing uh, the minds behind my favorite podcast, uh, the Magnus Archives. Uh, Jonathan Sims, or uh, Johnny, and uh, Alexander J. Newell. Alex, um, thank you for joining me. Um, No problem at all. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the Magnus Archives or Rusty Quill, uh, the company that created it, uh, first, go listen to the episode, um, preferably after Virtual Horicon, but ASAP. Um, and secondly, uh, the Magnus Archives is a horror fiction podcast written by Jonathan Sims, directed by Alexander J. Newell, and produced by Rusty Quill. The show launched in about uh, 2016, I believe. Um, I think so. 2016 or 2015, I I can never remember so which. Many years ago ages ago. That's how long ago it is. Aeons uh, past. Another age. Another life. And uh, as of this past Thursday, April second, it started its fifth and sadly for me final season. Um, Johnny, you are the uh, narrator for the podcast in character as the eponymous main character, actually. Um, and for the, my uh, sins. <laughs> at, at the beginning of the series, the newly appointed head archivist mm-hmm. of the Magnus Institute. Uh, the show is critically acclaimed with a massive fan following, um, as I can see from the fact that our viewer count just uh, tripled <laughs> when I started this interview. Um, and uh, extensive lore behind it. Uh, I will warn viewers that we may discuss some spoilers for later seasons if you've never watched the show. So I suggest you go watch it. You go or listen, sorry. Um, and uh, so, listener or viewer, since this is originally airing on Twitch, beware. Uh, so, Johnny, Alex, thank you for joining me. Uh, how are you faring in our um, quarantine state? I'm, broadly speaking, doing okay, actually. Like, I mean, a lot of background stress, because, hey, it's a real scary time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm actually pretty well built for staying indoors for long periods of time. Uh, also, a little bit nervous to be honest about the opening of season five because it was written a long time before uh, mm. any of this um sort of started but looking at the first sort of three or four episodes of the uh, of season five they're a bit close to home i would say in the current uh, the current scenario yeah literally yeah uh, that that's something um we can talk about if you would like to, uh, but also I know you, you you posted a very nice message at the beginning of um, season five about that, as well as on social media explaining your decision to um, stick with the what you had written. Um, there was a lot of back and forth on it, I have to admit, because you don't want to seem to be making light of, you know, something very serious, very global in its effects that has massive ramifications for years to come. But at the same time, there's there's an argument to be made that if you 
if you are curtailing the story that you are told to get around that as a thing, you're actually potentially doing an injustice. But mm-hmm. it, it was a whole thing. And I think in, in the end, the best that we could do is just l- listen and beware, put as many, be very upfront with people about, about what is being covered and make sure that people know. And yeah, Johnny's right. The first few are very heavy involved in, again, ideas of being sort of, isolated in a fixed location and things like that and there are other elements and i'm later in the season which yeah riffing on different aspects of the things that are happening in the world but those i can't go into right now yeah Yeah. um for those who aren't aware like i mentioned is the fifth season um and the the concept of this is a spoiler so mute if you don't want to know uh the concept of the end (laughs) was introduced uh, in season four. And that's... Um, Everything has changed in quite a significant way. Yes. <laughs> um, so kind of launching into my pre-prepared interview questions, uh, what was the inspiration behind the Magnus Archives? That's, uh, I think, the big question, really. Like, what, what, where did this idea come from originally? Um, so it's... Uh... I mean, a lot of places. Um, so the, and it kind of came in stages. I initially, um, Alex uh, approached me um, maybe 2015, 2014, uh, when I was part of a performing group uh, called The Mechanisms. And Alex had seen the show and said, hey, do you guys uh, want to be involved in this podcast company I'm setting up? Uh, to which the response was, it takes us about a year and a half to write eight songs. We're not really in a position to do anything on a podcast schedule uh but at that time i was working nights and i was listening to a lot of um it was right at the sort of the first um the first rise of like horror podcasts i was listening to a lot of pseudopod uh no sleep podcast had just started uh there was uh, i found a huge old archive of like lights out and um nightfall and all these old radio shows um and so i came to and knife point horror as well uh, had sort of just started up which are still a personal favorite uh, and i came to alex and i was like hey i would really like to have uh, a horror story anthology podcast where there are these because i because i come from uh i love that stupid meta plot building in 90s uh, rpgs where every single setting had this huge sprawling meta plot over like five different mega campaigns um and so i was very much like but i'd like there to be this world in the background and the stories sort of start to link together uh and to which alex went that sounds great but it needs an actual plot um and then we sort of started to really uh, hammer out uh, hammer out the story, hammer out the the world, and the fears, and all this sort of thing. Uh, Alex, I, I don't really have much more I can add to that. You've gone through through most of it. I remember initially the pitch was very much more anthology based, where it was very much closer to, um, I suppose, yeah, things like uh, knife points, a good a good a good touchstone for that kind of thing, and we were very aware sort of at the rusty quill side at the production side that if you're going to make something of the kind of scale that we were interested in making you have to have some element of consistency in terms of characterization and the issue with the anthology in pure anthology is you end up with one of two cheats cheat number one is that you have 
one character getting in just all kinds of scrapes all the time and it gets real peculiar that they aren't taking any active steps to avoid these situations or option number two you have a cast of thousands and it starts to fall apart a little bit because it's very difficult to remain engaged in a character when you know they've got they've got about 15 15 minutes of life left in them and then they're gone and the next one's in so yeah i think a lot of the very early stage was how do we take the bits that we want from anthology and then start to mash in an ensemble in a way yeah. that you can have consistent stakes between episodes while still keeping that anthology feel it's also why the main character has my name uh because at the beginning uh it was conceived like the archivist character was conceived in an almost almost a crypt keeper sort of uh mm. style if that makes sense the uh the the host and narrator who uh, contextualizes um the stories and then it started to actually uh because once we actually were like no it does actually need a proper plot and a, and a proper um world we kind of ran away with it uh, because we're both we both love a a big sprawling mm-hmm. uh, sprawling plot like that uh, and at no point did i think i should i should probably not have the same name as the main character anymore now that he's actually a character who is incredibly distinct from myself you, you, you but, say it at no point there were a couple of conversations of now johnny we're about to pull the trigger on this we, we can change the name are you sure i'm sure it'll be fine i'm sure there are no was, i mean I, I i don't i don't remember those conversations alex i don't i've oh, i mean that that whole time it's such a blur <laughs> uh, um so it, it's did you i'm, I'm actually going to jump order on questions because sure. i um you you sparked this one um did you kind of conceive of the entire show from start to finish initially or has it evolved dramatically over the seasons have you changed things because you you're either you thought it was something would work better or um you thought that it would you something happened naturally through um the writing of one season you went you know what i think it would be i don't think that's how this would turn out because of that so I think from my point of view, and Alex, uh, you may uh, disagree with the order. From my point of view, I think it went, uh, it effectively went the world, then the ending, then the seasons, mm. if that made make sense. So like once, yeah, we'd, right once we decided that we wanted to have this big meta plot, uh, it started out with, well, what's the world this takes place in? And so we worked out all the details of the fears, so the entities, uh, all that sort of thing. Uh, then we went to, uh, then we figured out, well, how do we want it to end? What, what do we want this, the final state to be? And that's drifted slightly throughout the course of the season, because the, all the writing the seasons, because, you know, mm-hmm. uh, over the course of five years, things slightly adjust, but it's still very much where we're aiming for. And then we worked through basically each season individually. I think the best way to describe it is in those early meetings, I mean, anyone who does writing will know this, like it's, it's a mistake to go too mushy or too rigid as in, if yeah. you've got, if you go in and you know, every single point and every single beat and every single thing, that means that what you're going to start doing is you're going to start fighting your characters because certain beats are going to come out slightly different how you intended or certain angles yeah. are going to start, certain themes are going to start bubbling up that seem a little bit more prominent. Um, I know I can speak for both of us, like the stuff that came up with the lonely ended up being 
oh yeah that was bigger theme yeah than what originally conceived multiple years ago but a lot of that is just in the execution yeah so the best way to think of it is you build this scaffold and you want a rigid scaffold you want to know what your destination is and you want to know what your broad points are but there is there is flex in and you there. want plenty of hooks all yeah, over that we can yeah. finally share actually the cliffhanger for the end of season four we had significant discussions about when that was going to drop was that going to yeah. drop at the end of season four my drop in the first quarter of season five and three yeah, my original pitch was actually that uh the big change happened uh about eight episodes into season five like episode four mm -hmm. because uh, so the end of season four be kind of a false climax and then like about yeah seven eight episodes into season five this comes out of absolutely nowhere, uh, which I, I, there's. I'm still a little bit sad that we couldn't absolutely blindside everyone with that. But Alex, Alex was, Alex was like, no, structurally it works a lot better as a as a season cliffhanger. Um, yeah, and also, yeah, he was 100 percent right. I, I think also part of it though is, and again, we discussed it before, is it is an it's not often that you have a series that you work on that spends a significant portion pre this kind of an event and also a significant portion post yeah. you tend to wait very heavily in one or the other either with flashbacks to before or flash forwards or whatever i see a sneaky cat tail there oh yeah uh but you can't hide I, cats I, from I, us i i wanted to be the people that got everyone used to the world as was and then spent a good chunky yeah. season really diving into the ramifications yeah yeah I, that i you answered a question i had which was kind of how how that cliffhanger was going to set the tone for season five perfectly um i think that for those who haven't listened to it yet i don't want to give too much details but uh you know there was a reality changing event uh for the show and um the first episode captured exactly what I envisioned um, would happen afterwards. Uh, I think you did an amazing job with that. Um, but it, it, you, as you've mentioned, things are going to progress through this yeah. season. Um, I mean, we've, I, I think it's, it's just the thing that interests us is there are so many places that deal with averted apocalypses mm -hmm. and so many places and so many places that deal with like, post-apocalypse finishing but there's very few that really dive into like transition apocalypse yeah the transition like the, like well what does this world actually look like mm -hmm. either this world averted this world is this changes a long time in the past or this change is like the climax that ends everything and it really i mean with so much of with so much of Magnus, what it comes down to is us saying, well, what what actually interests us about this idea? What 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 is it in this trope or this setup that we really want to dive into? And with season five, yeah, we 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 really want to dive into like what is this new world and how does it reflect on the characters that we've that we've spent so long getting to know. Personally, I kept coming back to, and again, this is a very close to the bone reference now, ever obviously. But say what you like about the work, but like the stand, Stephen King, is one of the ones that I always one come the... to as a full transitional one, where it starts prior to everything going wrong. It has the full transition into, and then the events after. So personally, that was something that I would always keep coming back to as interesting. Mm -hmm. However, we could never follow the same kind of route because that was very much a 
scientific cause with an, uh, a spiritualistic overlay, whereas yeah. Magnus has a way heavier metaphysical bent. So as a result, we can't really spend hours going, how long would a power plant last, you know, with, with a 6,000 foot scorpion living inside it? Because it, it's, it's not that kind yeah. of a story. Yeah, the question, the questions we want to get into is, well, what is that power plant now? Yeah. You know, now that right. we are in a world, in a world of metaphor, what is that power plant to become? Right. And um, the, the way that it'll be interesting to see also how the other entities react to all of this. Mm -hmm. That is what I am most excited for. Um, so with this being the final season, uh, do you have plans for any follow-up media related to the Magnus archives? Are there any, you don't have to give details, uh, but obviously, um, but anything else kind of percolating that you might want to be doing adjacent to the podcast or the, the stories behind it? So I would say we haven't precluded doing stuff tied to this universe by any stretch. And we are sort of in, talks about things in the planning stages and the early secret talks like that yeah but we, we literally cannot go into any details of that at all what i can say categorically is there's not going to be a version where season five of the magnus archives finishes and then six months down the line we have oh and here's season six where it's that mm. false ending you know the what you can think of as like x-file syndrome where it's had about eight endings at this yeah. point yeah. that's not a thing that we're interested in um so for magnus specifically although there are avenues we're exploring there isn't really anything formally that we can dive into beyond we're not against it but yeah. you're not going to be getting a full revival but i know that johnny for instance stand over to you has been doing quite a lot on the book recently which is not magnus specific yeah i've i mean we've we've obviously got projects that are that are coming up uh post magnus um they are not directly related to Magnus. So I've, um, I've got a, a book coming out with um, Orion uh, Glantz in uh, August, I believe, uh, called 13 Stories, um, which I'm really excited about. Uh, but it's it, while it has a lot of tonal similarities with Magnus, because that's what I like to write in a ghost story, um, it's, it's not connected to the actual uh, world. I will say that, like, broadly speaking, while we are... Uh, looking into various things and there's every likelihood that this is not the last of the world of the magnus archives that has that that might um come out this story is ending uh, yeah. season five is the end of uh the story of the podcast the characters uh the arcs all that sort of stuff that is that is coming to a close in a way that we're i mean i i have i love a good ending and I'm always very reluctant to reopen a uh, reopen a proper ending. Well, I mean, to to really like over summarize, the Magnus verse is not closed for business, but this story is going to end. Yeah. Because it has to, because otherwise you'd live long enough to become just very kind of mushy, no consequence, suddenly everyone's coming back to life. And I'm not interested in that as a story. I'm just not. Yeah. I can say I, I personally certainly appreciate that. Um, 
things need to be things need to have a beginning and an end uh thing you know you cited some good examples there with the x-files and other shows that ended several times and then didn't um so i think it's on the writers as well to be clear like a lot of the time there are external pressures where you will write the best ending you can and then if you're beholden to an external studio which we're not you can have that external studio go do it again and you either do or someone else comes in and yeah it's nice to not be under that kind of pressure i have to admit i'll be honest it's hard to overstate the luxury almost of um being of like knowing exactly how long we have to work with like of of going to alex hey i think that this would work well over this five season arc um and i think like you know 40 like 40 episodes within each season would work well and alex going grand we'll do five we'll do five seasons of 40 episodes and just having that solid and known and being able to write to that is i mean i as far as I'm like, that basically never happens in uh, media production. Not you really. realistically, it's an odd model. yeah, you you will almost never know how. And this this is this is where so much TV finds ends up being unsatisfyingly structured because like you almost never know how long you're actually going to get to tell your story, which makes properly waiting it always a difficult proposition. Uh, absolutely. You, you raised a point there I want to touch on briefly. Um, sure. The fact that you are your own self-contained studio um, and you do have other properties you're working on. We'll talk more about those a little bit later. Um, what is it like with, um, you obviously had, uh, the cast has evolved over the series. Um, and some of the people who are no longer cast members on the show are still very heavily involved with the rest of Rusty Quill. Um, was was some of those character departures scripted? Was it uh, was it because those people had too many other responsibilities because of their day jobs or their um, their other work? Um, or was it always kind of like, yeah, we know that uh, you know um, Mike LeBeau is a great example. He played Tim. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still very heavily involved in Rusty Quill work. I believe he's had a video. Mm-hmm. Um, he's participating in some of our other content here for virtual Horicon. Uh, to my point, uh, was that kind of scripted? They, you know, those characters leaving the show for, for whatever reason they leave. Yes. Uh, we, I mean, in Mike's case uh, specifically, um, he, his character left because it was the right time for the, the character to leave. It was something we that had been discussed. Um, and, I think very, very originally it was uh, intended to be part of a mid-season four climax, but it was, I think it was, it was moved to season three because we were shuffling stuff around. Um, But it was very much, uh, but, and and you'll, you'll notice that like his, his voice has not entirely departed because when we are very keen for, even when characters have left the story, they have still existed in that world and their, their, their presence is still very much felt throughout. Uh, so in Mike's case, it, it, it was, uh, it was the progression of the story. Uh, Mike is the loveliest man in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm very much not going to be like, Oh, I'm sick of seeing Mike all the time. We'll just write him out. <laughs> um, I think the only, the, I think the only character who's been written out for production uh, for production reasons was um, Sasha in season one 
Yeah. Uh, so where there was a... I, I can confirm that. There's only ever been one where production situations imposed a little bit on the story shapes and so on. Mm. Um, and that was for, uh, yes, yeah, Sasha, who was played by uh, Lottie Broomhall. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason being for that is that uh, Lottie ended up taking on a rather shiny and special job uh, working fairly high up in um, major IPs. I don't know if I can reference, but that most listeners would be aware of. It was quite, uh, a, it was, it was quite a, we were like, oh, that's a good yeah. job. Yeah, definitely take that, even if it means you can't be on yeah, our show. Exactly, <laughs> at the time, Lottie was actually our, our head of marketing as well. Right. And then did a sort of running leap into something fairly major. Uh, so as a result, we were like, okay, cool. Thankfully, there was already enough in place that we could take the story structure that was pretty much already there and yeah. just sort of angle it. Because I think we've, we have said it before that way, way back in the way, like pre-season one, mm-hmm. we were mulling, okay, someone is going to be, you know, got in this season, yeah. who's going to be and blah, 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 blah. But thankfully, we had so much notice in terms of what Lottie's situation was and the people that she was working with were being very good about yeah. it. They were sort of slamming the door shut. They let us close that sort of angle out. So Lottie was the only example I can think of. But at the same time, it it really wasn't a... It dovetailed into what we were kind of planning to do anyway. Yeah. Uh, like it, it changed the details, but not the overall shape. It played into our hands quite helpfully, yeah. thank goodness. Nice fortuitous yeah um circling back around to the the inspiration behind the show and kind of how you formulated it uh the entities are obviously very core um and i think one of the things that i loved was binge listening to the first two seasons and kind of growing into what that was very quickly um and i can imagine what it was like listening to it episodically uh and more spaced out and how that would build. Um, but for those who haven't listened to this is another spoiler. Uh, the entities are essentially based on humankind's greatest, most base fears, um, yeah. fear of the dark, fear of spiders, fear of um, meat. Look <laughs> at the viscera. The you know the flesh is a it's it's mm-hmm. a complicated one. It's 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 not it's not so much fear of meat as fear of being meat yeah that sort of existential um fear well, that, let's not forget cronenberg here like you got to work that yeah, stuff right into somewhere. also yeah also like literally just fear of body horror like mm-hmm. that sort of you look at something that's wrong in a very fleshy way and you're like ah yeah that, that one always I, whenever i'm explaining it to people and i get to that one they're like wait what and i that's i usually reference cronenberg um yeah. two two-part question um did that list evolve over time or did you kind of already go like, okay, these are the ones we want to include. Um, or did you, did you kind of say, did you add on any later on? Cause you went, Oh, hold on. This is, this fits this perfectly. And I know you mentioned that the, the lonely evolved um, and what, what role it would play, but was the list of entities kind of like ironed out from the start. So, I mean, within the world uh, of uh, Magnus Archives, like the the entities do change over the sort of the long, the long, long period, because fundamentally what what living beings are afraid of changes uh, like has changed over the course of uh, the past within the uh, production, within the writing of the show. uh, I think it took about 
a month or so of um, discussion and sort of hacking it together to get the list. And during that period, there was a lot of uh, sort of mixing around, like, for instance, um, the powers of like the hunt and the slaughter yeah, uh, at various points were a single power or split into like three different powers because yeah. they were like because you know the fear of violence the fear of uh you know pain the fear of and it in the end a lot of it came down to us trying to boil it down to okay well this isn't necessarily like a this isn't like the fear of being stabbed this is like what is that like are you afraid of the pain are you afraid of the the randomness of this violence are you afraid that somebody is coming for you, is, for is, you yeah. yeah exactly um and so that uh, there was quite a lot of wrangling and it's interesting because um periodically people will say oh well what about this sort of major phobia that's not directly covered um by one of the fears uh, and it's very much the case of like, while we do tie specific phobias into uh, specific fears, like, yeah, we, we tie we tie arachnophobia into the web. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's in many ways kind of a metaphorical sort of overlap, because whereas the web is fundamentally more about the fear of uh, loss of control of mm -hmm. um, being bound. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, or like, yeah, the fear of heights playing into the vast. Uh, which is a very strong phobia, but that's still, it's not so much that the vast is about that phobia as that phobia, as when it. when you look at it, comes from that sense of the void. Yeah, it's a mistake to think of them as phobias made manifest, because they're not, and they're not intended to be. It's more um, almost fear cues, which is mm. kind of different thematically. I remember there's, there were two that were a bit of an odd one that were sticking points. There was one was, we talked a lot about where war fit in. Yeah. Um, and right. we were like, okay, is it this one? Is it this one? Is it a combination of these? Blah, blah, blah. There was a point where the war, where like war was a separate thing mm. to the slaughter. Yeah. Um, when we were talking about war, that the, the palette, color metaphor started to come up where we just like the the only way of dealing with this specific concept is to start merging here and looking at new combinations rather than just you make it belong to one or the other um and the other one was uh in a very life imitates art i know that the very last addition to all of them was uh again major spoilers uh the sort of the idea of like the extinction and yep. yeah. um, that that fifteenth power stuff was very much a we had our core fourteen and then a, a decent chunk of time later came in going let's let's actually this yeah this it. isn't this isn't yeah. easily covered and we should, also we should, it but it was much later which was yeah, yeah. I've been saying that in a in a big way also it does like within the fiction within the the world itself um, it does like these these powers are distinctions drawn by people. Yeah. Uh, like people within the world are looking at how these entities manifest and saying, well, here is the line. And on this this side of the line, uh, you have uh, the dark. And on this side of the line, you have the desolation. Um, and like they all have overlap with each other. So it's it's very much intended as uh, to be a little bit messy because so much of it is this huge inhuman um uh, yeah, entities mm -hmm. that are being 
grouped together somewhat artificially by people trying to understand things. Someone took a fair spectrum and made a very helpful colour wheel, but the problem is that it's still a spectrum even if you put it in a wheel. Yeah. Right. I liked I liked your um, analogy of the the kind of the color spectrum because you could say like okay yeah maybe the vast is blue but like how many shades of blue are there? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and when do when you start differentiating them from purple? Yeah, and, and like there's so many things that you can subdivide down and subdivide down and uh, yeah. I think part of it was born of necessity as well, because very, very early we were like, okay, let's just be as complete as we can. And at some point you realize you've drilled down so far that it's like... Oh yeah, there was one point where, like, I I think, like, at some point I was like, Alex, I've got 30. It's it's too many. (laughs) No one one will be able to remember any of them. I remember, I genuinely was like, it's 14 too many. Do we rein it in from there? Like, Yeah, like, oh, that was another one. Uh, the corruption, which is like sort of mm. uh, this like squirming, like trypophobia, squirming insects, but mm-hmm. also contagion disease. At one point, like that has been two different powers or the same power at, vari- at various points in the early design process. Right. Uh, and yeah, there, there are a few where it was just like, we've got too many. And these ones, they have a similar brain taste. Well, you even so squash them together. You even actually play that out on the show to a degree, um, where the the characters are having trouble differentiating some of them, and not they're like, "Is this corruption? You know, it's this the hive, or is this a different entity?" Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that that helped actually explain it very well to a listener, um, going, "Oh, okay, I understand how these are loosely structured to a degree." Um, I do want to be, uh, I, I want to ask one more question specifically about the show and then kind of change topics a little bit. And this one's primarily for Alex because uh, it, it's about Martin. Um, Martin is, is one of my favorite characters on the series uh, and his character journey has been spectacular. I think um, the character has evolved more than most of the other characters, uh, particularly with season four. <laughs> sure. Um was that also, I mean, you, you did mention, we, we've talked about how the, the way the lonely played in has was evolved as the show did, but did Martin's journey also evolve in kind of tandem with that? I'm trying to think. So going way back, going way, way back, we're talking like pre-powers, wouldn't it be cool to do an anthology? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the characters that, I pushed for, but again, Johnny was just immediately like, yeah, let's do that. Good idea. Was we knew we'd need a foil. Um, it's that simple. It's like, and we're talking super early. It was just like, look, there has to be a foil. And that whole Martin, if you let a dog in the archives or whatever it was, is the clearest manifestation of, hey, look, everyone, there's going to be a foil too. And let's leave it at that and then let it play out. Um, yeah, I think in that very first in that very first meeting where I was like, hey, here's this anthology I've got an idea for. You're like, he needs to hate someone. He needs to have an assistant that he that just oh he really doesn't like, um, and I was like yeah no okay let's let's do that. <laughs> the the fact that I was playing Martin was strictly for convenience. If I'm mm-hmm. if I'm being brutally honest, is we knew that there'd be a lot of interactions between the archivist and Martin, and ultimately if we were set when in the very early days when we were setting stuff up, it was a case of look I'm going to be at the recordings anyway, let's do that. Um, but in terms of Martin's growth of a character as a character 
he was once things picked up beyond like the first we're talking like the first couple of episodes yeah and um, mm. it was very much a case of that arc was more or less laid out i would say the lonely was the biggest effect on martin that was larger than initially um pushed for and i don't mean that it fundamentally changed the way martin works or what his destination but think of it as a minor root alteration where i don't think in the very early days we were going to lean on the lonely quite so hard as we did yeah um we were going to be focusing a lot more on like how martin engaged with fear as being distinct from how other characters engaged with fear but it wasn't necessarily going to be so tied to the lonely however the more that the lonely came up throughout never mind in season four it became very apparent that that overlap was far too heavy to ignore so it became less about martin engaging with fear and more about using the lonely as a lens to start examining that um i i'd say that broadly speaking it's played out pretty much how it always was going to but I think the whole Lucas connection was a lot stronger than maybe yeah. he initially had laid out way, way back when. But again, Johnny I mean, certainly because he's got a far one, better memory than I have. Uh, well, um, I mean, like certainly it, that, like right from the beginning, what like we were like, okay, well, there's this, there's Martin. He's going to be the foil. And as soon as we started talking, like five season arcs for um, for these characters, I mean, there's only. There's only so many narratively satisfying places you can go with that sort of initial dynamic, um, and uh, like I can't remember exactly what point oh. in season one was. I think these characters end up together. I think yeah, that 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 is the right trajectory. Um, but as soon as like as soon as we we're like, oh yeah, actually that makes that makes a lot of sense. It wasn't. I don't think it wasn't originally intended to be as plot significant i think as it yeah. ended up being like it was it was very much intended to be like the emotional the mm-hmm. like the emotional journey of the series um but like it... mid season 1 was where we sort of pulled the trigger where up to then we'd been toying with it and it might even be slightly earlier than that where we were just like no it was no it was it was a bit later because we'd had a couple of actual appearances of martin by the time we decided uh, yeah, actually, this right. is this is a this is a really good this is a, this is a, a a good direction to go in. Yeah, because it was it was after we'd had like a couple. It was like two or three episodes into them having a bit of a dynamic between the two, um, yeah. and certainly by end of season one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I can't pin it. I can't pin it to a specific point. I mean, this this is the thing about how about being like having that flexibility and that ability to be a bit reactive uh within uh within shaping the series uh is that a lot of things emerged very organically to the point where it's like at what point did we decide x or y and generally the answer is either right at the beginning or don't know just it gradually happened and at one point we were like oh this seems to be happening do we push it do we push it through fully or do we like readjust trajectory and generally we go let's push it through because that's the interesting choice I think it's a good demonstration of that stuff we were talking about earlier where you want to have your scaffold but you don't want to be too rigid yeah um, this is a good example where because there was a little bit of like ambiguity built in that we could lean into the way the story wanted to be told but I, again I, I, Johnny sums it up better than I do <laughs> oh, that's wonderful uh, 
a little bit of a follow-up question. You don't have to elaborate. Obviously, it's a little more on the personal side, but like, were you two good friends before you started working on this together? We actually met way back when. So before yeah. I'd seen the mechanisms, I met Johnny at... Um, we worked the same night shift. Yeah, and I, I, I will put my hands up and I confess this every time, which is Johnny goes oh, I'm in this band, you should check it out. And I did the same reaction that every single person who has ever been invited to a band mm-hmm. goes with you go, that sounds really interesting. I'll definitely go. And then c- carried on doing as, as I was, but because we were both doing the Edinburgh Festival in yeah. creative capacities, I was doing mm-hmm. like four or five shows and was just like, I need, I need to see something and not do something. Yep. Uh, immediately went and then uh the, I, it's 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 an awful confession i own four albums in my entire life it's not an awful confession you make it every interview i know it, it's it's but i have to I have to own my mis- i have to own my problems i have four albums paul simon's graceland and then all three of the mechanisms that were available <laughs> and that was that because i i was a hard convert but prior to that it, Johnny was just this guy who, who was. Like we got on very well. Like there was a re- there was a reason that we that we would like discussed being at the fringe uh, at the same time. Like we like yeah. it was it was a it was a weird night shift because it was very super odd. like it was qu- it was just quite silent and dead. There were about eighty people in a room just not talking, uh, and you'd all like be listening to your like music or your podcasts. Workers, then you uh. take away the cubicles, but everyone still behaves like they're still there. Yeah. Very yeah. odd. But like you know, we you'd, you'd end up in the kitchen and have like a quiet chat, and like we always got on very well. Which uh, I and um, so when we started working together, like we were already working from a baseline of we're really good friends. And then it turned out that we worked really well together as creative partners. Uh, and yeah, so I, I would I'd, I'd say that we're good friends. I'd say I'd, that we're good I'd friends. allow it. At this yeah, point. yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, it's but I, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that the, the, the sort of traditional narrative that people tell about it is true. It was a single mechanisms gig was the one where I went, okay, cool, right. I need to make something with these people or any. Or how do we do that? It was yeah. a specific gig that I went to that mm. sort of flicked that switch. Awesome. Uh, so I want to shift gears. I want to talk about some of the other aspects of Rusty Quill, some of the other things that uh, you're involved with, uh, specifically around tabletop gaming, because that's what this is, a tabletop gaming convention. Um, Rusty Quill uh, also has a prolific tabletop gaming podcast, um, a Twitch stream that launched semi-recently, and um, lots of content available on that side of things. Uh, I want to ask each of you kind of how you got into tabletop gaming and what the first game you played was. Uh, Johnny? Um, I got into it through my dad. Uh, my father has, t- has been a uh, role player, I mean, all my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember sort of being eight years old and sort of like sneaking down after I'd technically gone to bed and listening to the to these games going on. Uh, I think like I think I managed to to worm my way onto a traveler game that uh, that they were doing, uh, aged about eleven, uh, much to the uh, eh, Looking back on it, much to the irritation, I think of some of the uh, some of the members uh, of the group who now had to moderate their language for an eleven-year-old. Um, the first game I remember properly playing was probably a D and D third edition game uh, that my uh, dad ran for me because when third edition came out, I was about twelve or thirteen, and I was very much like, "Oh, cool! Th- this is this is new. This is very much how I can get started in this hobby that really interests me." 
um, and I started running it. And I ran it for about a year or so before I discovered good RPGs. Um, <laughs> little little bit of shade on third edition. Yeah, um, it deserves it. But uh, and since then, I've been doing it pretty much constantly. Fantastic, Alex. My routine is very weird, um, and I don't know many people know. This. I don't even know if Johnny knows this. So I'm I'm not sure. I'm I'm actually excited to hear what uh, what this what this is. I'm shot. Okay, so straight out of the gate, uh, I grew up in a comparatively rural community um, and did not have much in the way of local friends. I spent a lot of time like roaming the hills alone, kind of thing. Um, but that meant that I didn't actually even become aware of RPGs until I was. 20 i think and the way i (laughs) the way i got into it is i was cast in i used to do a lot of acting um before i went more into the directing side Uh, and i was cast in a comedic uh play which was about a group of dungeons and dragons players who join a um a basically malicious self-help group um where it was like the idea was that it was a self-help group but it it wasn't actually self-help the guy was taking advantage of people and they didn't need help because they didn't have a problem like that was the kind of angle etc this is years and years ago anyway i didn't even know what dungeons and dragons was so our director a guy named uh rj uh, (laughs) he ran a game of D &D so that i would at least know what the heck was the thing was about um it was it was a, a just a smorgas it was like a christmas themed Tom Cruise was stealing the Oscars, run through the most stripped down version of 3.0 ever. Um, And at the end of it, I really, really enjoyed the game a lot. Um, And so I ended up just finding a bunch of random strangers, sort of friend of a friend of a friend asking, and then joined someone else's ongoing game for that. And then ended up, I think 3.0 was the first game I ever played. But yeah, uh, my, my in is a bit odd. Um, but I only started sort of the GMing side where that was when I really broadened because up to then I genuinely, I went through all the stages people have. Oh, what what'd you play? Dungeons and Dragons? Because that's the only RPG. Mm. And then I started to uh, GM and went, oh no, there's lots. How do I memorize them? Oh, you don't. Right. You just, you just play what you want. I get it now. Okay. Uh, and it was at that point that I started running. It's at that point I set up Rusty Quill was just when I had finished GMing my first long campaign and went, right, I understand the landscape now and blah, blah, blah. But I, I came to it very late. Interesting. Um, so all three of us have now thrown a little shade at Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition. Um, what is your favorite game system? <laughs> oh, um, I mean, I like, I don't really have, like, I mean, what, what game am I playing? uh is the question uh because there are there are so many amazing different game systems for so many different sorts of game right um you know i for instance i i really love um uh i mean setting wise i've i've got a a, i've always uh, enjoyed it's i i've become increasingly aware of how problematic the setting is but deadlands is one that has sort of uh being part of my role-playing life for about like for most of it uh and i have a lot of residual affection for that uh but system wise i mean if i'm doing uh sort of a an investigation-y um high lethality thing i'll probably use like the cthulhu hack um if i'm going uh if i'm going more sort of 
uh, long, slow, I might like Trail of Cthulhu to go for a couple of horror ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I if I want something a bit like old school, gritty, but like high chaos, I really like uh, Maze Rats, uh, which I periodically run like an entirely improvised, uh, like literally rolling the adventure title at the table um and then being like ah in the city of the shrouded cannibal god let's what is what is this adventure now play that. um yeah i play that yeah uh, no, and it was great fun um but uh, so like the the system i've got a lot of systems that i really love uh but so much of it depends yeah. on the game i'm really currently uh into blades in the dark uh, which a wonderful we're, game uh, which we're we're playing through at the moment uh, they decided to be a cult perhaps unsurprisingly uh, of the ghost sun, uh, because their logic being nice. everything else has a ghost. The sun is dead. Sun probably has a ghost. Oh. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> um, so again, due to having a weird route in where I have now... I have spent more time playing games for performance than I have playing games for pleasure. Yeah. Has led to a very severe warping of my experience of of the the, the RPG field. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always had a soft spot for three point five, not because it was the best built thing, but I liked that they set themselves the arbitrary goal of do it. Yeah. How? Do it. Here's more rules. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, liked, I liked that they were just like, we'll keep putting rules in, and you can do anything. Yeah. Uh, and then we convert to pathfinder which is still to this day the system that we play the podcast in uh reason okay. for that is it streamlined it a little bit and the reason that i used that for the podcast was uh twofold uh firstly at the time it was a system that i knew in its entirety i mean i yes. knew it all obviously the way pathfinder works though is there's so many additional bolt-ons and so on that at this point mm-hmm. it's enormous and um, this is pathfinder 1.0 um, and the second one as well is that Pathfinder was very open about like, hey, if you want to check the details for this this RPG game, you can online. You don't, you're not, I mean, they encourage you to buy the books and obviously the books have more detail and I encourage people, always encourage people to do so. But at the same time, it was- Well, so game that, developers. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, our listeners had to be able to follow along and, the num- and we set up the podcast initially very openly stating, because the actual play field, I mean, we set this up in like mid 2015, Mm-hmm. Our first episodes were explaining what an RPG was. Oh, yeah. Um, the field has really changed. So as a result, we needed something where people could basically Google what on earth are they talking about? Oh, right, here's that rule that they talked about, and then go and, and get invested. So we spent a lot of our early episodes explaining stuff. But um, I'm interested in starting to play Pathfinder 2.0. I haven't done that yet. Yep. That's high up on my list. Um, because I actually play Fifth Ed among, for a group for pure pleasure where I... I I don't do anything productive with it. I just play a game. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of the streamlining that they did. I know there's been a lot of backlash in terms of streamlining being anti-crunch and vice versa. Um, I, I have to admit, like I'm, I'm kind of pro-streamlining, but again, I play primarily as a performer. So as yeah. a result, any streamlining yeah. is an absolute boon. Um, also, d and I've never Sorry. brought up before where I have been fascinated with one setting I've never had the chance to play and I'm just about to start GMing in, which is Eclipse Phase. <sighs> yes. Um, so Eclipse Phase is one where I, I genuinely, I am, I think today, getting my, uh, my full book for the second edition where I get to dive yes. in and have a look at it. Um, but I know the setting well because they made their settings available via Creative Commons, went, have a look at it. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and went, Oh my God, you have multiple valid economies 
for a post-scarcity society. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> you have it. You have mechanics for forking, and it's like I would like to play three hundred and sixty-seven. Mechanics for what? Sorry. The same person. Forking, yes. Splitting the same personality. You genuinely. Oh right. State. Hey, yeah. I'll I'll give you. You can play three hundred iterations of the same person, and the rules don't even say that's a bad idea. They're like, go for it. Yeah. That's interesting to me. And um, uh, yeah. obviously, like this is coming from a place of ignorance. I haven't started to play it yet. But that was one that pinged upon my uh, my radar in first ed, and I went, "Wow!" For something going from like cold to like out of the gates, you did a lot of setting work. So that drew a lot of attention to me. Uh, to me, sorry, I drew a lot of attention to that, and I'm I'm interested in that. So I'm looking forward to diving into sort of second ed as uh, as a thing. But I couldn't recommend it enough, and I laugh because so much of what um, so much of what Rusty Quill Gaming's core campaign became. Mm-hmm. Um, what was already put in place before I became aware of Eclipse Phase. And then I just went, oh, I see what I've done here. I've made Eclipse Phase in Pathfinder. No wonder it's so weird. Um, and it is. I, 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 can't, I can't help but acknowledge it. Like I, I became aware of Eclipse Phase so, so far down the line that I'm not worried about like mm-hmm. cribbing as such. Yeah. But yeah, the, the parallels now I am aware of Eclipse Phase are marked <laughs> i i i have also not yet played eclipse phase but it's been on my radar for about half a year now um after seeing it i only know the name it. i'm afraid it's uh it's not one of but i'm I, definitely going to be looking into recommend it people like just dive into the oh, yeah. settings materials that are available for mm. free because the freely available like open i don't think it's open source i think it's creative commons and yeah, stuff is hugely in depth anyway and genuinely for the sci-fi field, mm-hmm. it is rare to get an RPG that takes all of these different elements and goes, hey, look, it makes sense now. And you go, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Fab. It, the, my only problem with Eclipse Phase is when people say, okay, what's it about? And I'm like, it's sci-fi horror, but um, just here, here's, read this. <laughs> I can't explain it. Um, yeah, that, it's, it's a tough it's one a to game. sell someone on, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to combine uh, two questions I had, uh, which is on the player side. Um, I know, like personally, I'm I'm a perpetual GM. I pretty much only run games. Uh, I feel your pain. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Favorite character that you've ever gotten to play? Um, it could be an NPC as well. Um, and favorite experience, and they don't obviously have to be tied together, but. And or, I guess, if you'd rather talk about the experience and the character. Um, oh, I think for me, um, a lot of my favorite, a lot of my favorite uh, MP, uh, it's mainly NPCs because, uh, like, I, I GM a lot more than I play, um, and I, I think my favorite NPCs tend to be. Uh, uh, I do some uh, game design uh, work with MacGuffin and Company, uh, which is, uh, we do uh, tabletop. Uh, and we do these sort of micro settings, which are intended to be like, rather than huge sprawling epic campaigns, they're like, well, you can play through this in like six sessions uh, and we'll provide like, M- like idea NPCs. And often getting to voice these these ones that we've, that, um, that we've workshopped and like put a lot of heart into creating these NPCs and then actually getting to, to voice them when running the game. It 
I always love it a hell of a lot more than I, than I thought I, I would. You know, like we 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 come up with, you know, oh here's a here's a creepy coroner who's just super excited to get into those corpses, uh, and then actually playing it. I'm like, oh no, this this feels really lovely to play because this is something that I've actually created and poured a lot of uh, a lot of time into beforehand. Uh, in terms of uh, experience, in terms of experiences, I think it's the time that I convinced my players that their boss wasn't a monster for about a year by telling them directly <laughs> that their boss was a monster um because i i gave it as i i someone rolled a double one on an investigation roll uh and i said oh yeah no these these records clearly clearly indicate that calhoun you're you're like the boss of of your agency they're deep into this. They, they are they are one of these monsters. Uh, and so the rest of the campaign, the player that got that double one was like playing somebody who believes something erroneous because they knew it came from a double one. So they were like, no, guys, he's definitely in. And everyone else was like, oh, yeah, sure. And then that reveal at the end. Ooh, delicious. That's amazing. I, I think for me, I, I couldn't narrow it down to one. Um, I'm quite lucky in that both my favorite characters and my favorite experiences are available for other people to listen to, which is useful. Um, I quite, my, my two favorite characters that I've enjoyed playing are a paladin by the name of Ed and a uh, teleportation specialist by the name of Einstein. Uh, and the reason for that is similar for both, but in very different ways, which is because of the nature of how much ground you cover when you're playing for performance and things like that, um, there is a heavy improvisational element and you're, you rely on that scaffold that I've talked about a lot and there has to be a lot of flex to keep things moving perpetually, smoothly, cleanly. But playing those two characters is wonderful because I just get to turn off huge tracts of my brain whilst playing them and not monitor what I say in any way and then deal with the ramifications thereof. To play Ed, the goal is very, very simple. You just turn off everything that isn't lovely and see what happens. Uh, and then to play Einstein, uh, Einstein's the one that everyone enjoys to play in some version, which is let's play a roaming id. And, you know, everyone likes it. You love to play it as long as you play it with that certain nuance of you don't be a problem for the players at the table, which I have seen people playing that as a type. Uh, and it, it's just nice to cut loose and genuinely just turn on the improv thing and keep talking until people stop you and then just dealing with that that's quite fun my favorite experience is one that hasn't fully played out for listeners yet but has fully played out in the recording studio okay. which is um a long time ago i openly stated i could never do anything to do with time travel the reason being is it destroys campaigns wholesale um, it is absolute campaign death. Mm. And I ended up in a situation with the campaign. Yeah. How where... did the last episode of, uh, how did the last season of Frosty Core Gaming go? Remind, remind yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, the way that I handled that was with uh, multiple aspects of time travel where I threw, spoilers, I threw a bunch of characters into the ancient past. And I also threw the current characters who weren't thrown into the ancient past forward by a year with no more than that but with no knowledge of events that had happened oh, fine. But the reason that it comes as my favorite experience is one player reactions are phenomenal uh and there's nothing quite so fun as going cool your characters have been out of the loop for how long 
and a year and a half, two years, then everything's changed and it's it's kind of your fault deal. Um, but the other one is I got to close the loop in a way that rarely comes off with time travel. Um, and it, I got to because of two things. One, being very, very careful and there being a backdoor built in that I made use of. And the second one is one player specifically really got on board and it hasn't gone off yet in the main campaign. But when it does, I didn't close the loop. A player did off their own back without me steering them. They went mm, and then dropped this gorgeous little parcel that sewed that loop up. That was phenomenal because that's not happened before for me. And I've seen campaigns just flounder in this kind of a situation. I didn't have to resort to paradoxes or anything like that. I didn't have to retcon anything. They just saw the bit and they did in improv it's called uh playing the improv ninja mm-hmm. or, like you, you know you see you see the point that has to be played dive in put that block in and then you back off again yeah. and the player did it perfectly it'll be very obvious to listeners when that goes off but it was gorgeous and it hasn't happened before or since awesome i have one other actually i love npcs that arise from just random practical improv <laughs> um the like there yeah. there was a game um uh, set in 1940s uh san francisco uh where the players lived on a houseboat in this dock with like loads of other houseboats and i was constantly trying to emphasize to them that, that like the, the sense of like there's no privacy because everyone's it's everyone's very close to each other uh, and they kept having really 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 like dangerous and confidential discussions just in their houseboat uh so there was always the npc who is their next door neighbor who at some point would just chime in with their ideas uh and uh you know just just be like shut up dave and it's like i was just suggesting that's great that's fantastic (laughs) Uh, one of my favorite npcs actually came up for basically the same reason i set up a one shot and the first thing the players did was something that i hadn't planned for so I was like, okay, writing up NPCs on the fly. Here we go. And yeah. one of them stuck. And I d- developed a fully more fully fledged version of that NPC for other games later on. So yeah. um, you've mentioned this a couple of times. And this is a, a, a little bit separate from the other things. But the difference between performance play and sitting down and just enjoying a game at a table. Um, uh, Alex, can you elaborate more on um, what goes into that? Like what the difference is and like what goes into performance play that makes it different. So there is a common misconception as to what the main difference is. Mm-hmm. And, and the most common misconception I get is that people go, oh, I get it. It's what you do is you just play a game that you would play with friends. But what you do is you make sure you watch what you say. No, it's not that at all. Um, what it actually entails a lot of is... Um, I mean, everyone has their different styles. It relies a lot on good communication with your players. Um, and it relies on an enormous amount of additional table etiquette, if I'm being honest. Those are the two core ones. Uh, that being the case of, you know, in a normal table where like someone's like, you know, black card, w- w- I'm not covering this topic. I'm not comfortable with it. I don't want to deal with it. And you honor that, you know, good table etiquette. Well, you take that and you also add recording elements. Um, you add things like, cool someone will give a speech as a character and then go i want to redo that speech 
in a normal okay. RPG game, you just go, cool, we retcon it to whatever you want, it's fine. In this, you go, okay, everyone, stop. We're now rolling back the clock by about five minutes. Let's play this through again, please. And that kind of thing. Um, and additionally, requires a lot of discipline from your players, a lot of discipline, because on the one hand, it, people get very envious because they're like, oh, when I play my game, you know, one player's always on their phone and there's always someone who's off making a cup of tea while stuff's playing out. And, you know, that's just human nature and it's fine. Well, in, in the recording studio, it, it's sort of the inverse of that. Everyone is clued in the whole time, which is great, but everyone has something to contribute. And so it takes an enormous amount of discipline for just basic recording etiquette of don't speak over one another, uh, don't deny things. And you have to, again, like thankfully the majority of our uh, cast came from an improv background. I used to teach improv for years um, and you use a lot of the same core principles. Uh, one of them being the accept and build. I always, you know, I put a couple of caveats in there. You don't build on something that is objectively awful but that doesn't come up because i've chosen the players but the accept and build principle really is more relying on the idea that if someone presents you something it's incredibly important that everyone at the table hears that thing that's been presented and it becomes world extant and it's the huge advantage of playing for performance is that everyone gets to be part of that and it means that things roll along far quicker than in a normal campaign because people just listen you don't get things dropping going oh wait who who is this character i don't right wait, there's an elephant in this room who put an elephant in this room um it, it doesn't it doesn't happen because people are paying attention but the flip side is that it is it can get quite intense and i don't mean that in like we get at each other's throats but there is a natural instinct sometimes to shy away from problematic story elements and i don't mean problematic in terms of like let's be hugely uh, racist or something that's not what i'm getting at but more mm -hmm. like engaging in themes of grief engaging in themes of personal loss in a meaningful way if you're going to do that on a recorded medium you've got to do it properly you've got to put your legwork in you've got to check that the players are okay with it you've got to lay this out, things out and you've got to be more open with your players than you would otherwise be where i'll i'll have a sit down and go if it was a normal rpg i'd be like listen i'm going to try something it doesn't work we can bail on it in this one i'll have a sit down going cool i'm going to be examining the following themes yep. uh, and a couple of times the other one as well is you have to be aware that you can lose you can lose control of the story slightly without realizing it and you need your players to keep you in check which is something that is far bigger in playing for performance so that's one where i will brief my players going i am going to start touching on some pretty heavy material here it would be incredibly useful for me if anyone can call me up if i misspeak um if i you know accidentally like open a can of worms that i didn't mean to and having players that you can rely on for that is incredibly important. So the, probably the biggest element for playing for performance more than anything else is you are incredibly cutthroat with who you allow at the table. Um, yeah. And you, you don't get to play for performance with, oh, your mates that you've got, us fine. Don't get me wrong. I am now good friends with everyone that plays at the table. But uh, Ben, one of our core characters, um, sorry, one of our core players even, I had never met and he auditioned. He came yep. in and played a game with us to see if he was a good fit. And we talked about what he wanted from a game and we talked about how he related to RPGs and stuff like that. Helen, um, who is um, uh, le the latest addition to the group, um, same situation. I never knew Helen before this. We had a sit down talk, we had a chat, we had her, invited her in to play a special, a ridiculous fifth ed uh, special based in Beowulf. <laughs> Um, where the entire conceit relied on the fact that no one remembered she was there. Um, 
and then we we brought her back in going okay you're a good fit let's 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 work with you but you are so much more cutthroat and also it is unfortunately it's very difficult to do playing for performance with a complete new player where you're like hey let's introduce you to this gradually because on the one hand yeah they're a good in for for listeners to learn the system but on the other it, there's a there's an overhead to learning in RPG and you're, you're playing for other people's pleasure and unfortunately what that requires is either lots of editing so it sounds like the new player got it like that yeah or you are more open about it and there's a lot of revisiting the same stuff but I, I could go on and on about this like I've been doing it absolutely for years and years and I'm I realize I'm kind of uh, tripping over myself at this point yeah. no I, I find like it's it's the difference between doing a, a card trick for your friends and doing a huge stage trick, which requires a lot of plants. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, we, we, we've talked about that a lot ourselves um, because we do run actual plays or we're starting to on our channel. Um, and I think uh, one thing that I have found, and I don't know if this has come up, but when, when a friend does audition to be involved and you're like, mm, I'm sorry. Mm-mm. <laughs> Uh, it comes you will, up. You will end up saying no to people that you know. Yep. Uh, and you will have to just go. And people who you've played great games with. Yeah. And it's in, not in exactly. a bad player. You know. Yeah. It's a, it it's doesn't mean you're a bad player. Compatible player. Which exactly. Is yeah. Exactly. The skill sets are like the skill sets are related, but fundamentally very different. Mm-hmm. The the skill it takes to the the skill the skill of making uh, a a private game good are to do with like bringing bringing joy to a, a, the room it's it's uh you know you, you can play your characters you can dive in and you you sort of have a good time and you know you can l- pepper it with in jokes you all this sort of stuff but the skills that are required to uh perform uh to perform play uh well are often a lot more structural as well a lot more improvisational it requires you to not just to not just be, be well what would my character do uh, or even what would my character do that is fun, but yeah. what would my character do that contributes to the story that we're telling at the moment? And it's not worth, I can't I can't overstate it enough, horror is the hardest one to play mm. for performance. It is incredibly difficult to play horror RPGs for performance because mm. as your, your performers will have a natural instinct to play to the, if they're good performers, they'll have a natural insti- instinct to play towards the audience. What that tends to mean is jokes, undercutting yeah. the tone, and that's not yeah. them trying to sabotage. That's it is a it is a learned response that you give in order to to help boost energy levels through a performance. But for horror, that can consists- and in the right places, it can amplify it. Yeah, absolutely. But that to sustain that consistency of tone and mm. to keep the stakes high in a way that is comfortable for an audience, so that they're not like I'm, I'm checking out on this, but at the yeah. same time. Has has some integrity to it. It's it's tricky. There's a reason we haven't done many horror specials, and it's because it's really hard to pull off. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. like generally the horror specials that we do either have a humorous element laced through them, or uh, Alex, you you tend to you you like to drop moments of horror into your wider non-horror game, which is very effective, but is not in the same way running a horror game. And that's one where. The only reason I can do that is because I go, hey, performer who's played the same character for three years, you, you care about them, don't you? Now I get to do this horror bit because yeah. they're invested, because mm-hmm. 
they genuinely as a player are like okay this will have huge ramifications i should lock in but that's that's a luxury that not many people have and absolutely 60 plus episodes is a useful tool to draw on at this point fantastic um the last question i really have for each of you is um directly tying the magnus archives to gaming in a sense um in the Magnus archives, human emotions, particularly fear, are a major theme um, laced through the entire story. Um, what in tabletop role-playing games are, uh, are the best aspects of the human condition to explore? Uh, I, I, it's I'm nice light, a nice light to, one to, to see us I out. I have <laughs> to answer for this one because I've actually been asked this before, so I've genuinely like in a couple of interviews something similar has come up and straightforward for me is agency um rpgs are when done properly an engine for examining choice okay Mm -hmm. um both player choice and character choice and all being a gm really is deep down is going here is a choice and here is a randomizing element so you are not just picking arbitrarily between left and right What's the choice? And every time, every time you play, it's the one universal I can find in all RPGs is that not preoccupation, but that focus upon choice and that focus upon character agency. A bad RPG is one where the players have no agency. There are other ways that an RPG can you know, go wrong or whatever, but ultimately, if your players have no agency, what you have there is a novel. And that, that idea of agency means that for me, any rpg that leans heavily into dealing with agency as a concept dealing with the human condition which is you know what is the like from any angle if you want to do something that's about time or time travel what is the human condition but just a series of, of choices where the present is just the choice you're on at the moment or horror it's examining i don't know the consequences of choices that are made blind or is this even a real choice? Alex, no, it's about examining a horrible monster. Oh, sorry, and, and the horrible monster, just in... in, in just like, like oozing and just like, oh, you know, <laughs> horrible. Genuinely, for me, I always end up looping it back around to every single game, all I do is hold up the system, hold up the setting, and then go, right, what aspects of agency does this want me to examine and focus on? And then I will draw story from that. Um, and I, it, it's for me personally, this is not saying it's an absolute but I always end up looping back into that no matter what system setting or like themes I'm ex- engaging in. For me, I think as a GM, uh, the sort of the emotions and the the, the elements that are uh, most, uh, the RPGs are most effective at examining are, I mean, kind of linking into the idea of agency are whatever the players want to, but not necessarily like often they don't necessarily players fundamentally are kind of masochists uh, <laughs> and your job as a gm is to give them the context where they can uh, sort of emotionally hurt themselves in a safe in a safe way that they want to uh and so like it's interesting playing with like um uh, playing with the same players in like lots of different campaigns because you sort of start to get a sense of how different players like what aspects of of uh, a character um a player really likes to examine like are they like do you find that them a lot of their characters engage with the ideas of abandonment uh or like 
do all their characters uh, struggle with sort of uh, anger issues? Um, and then, like, as you get a sense of that, you can look at the character and sort of construct scenarios that allow them to engage and develop that. Um, and you also start to get a, a sense of, like, how they engage with that. Are they, like, are they very much going to be keeping a light comedic tone until they until they're ready to break it so it's so you have to like make sure that they have clear flashpoints where their like light-hearted comedic camera character can suddenly take the 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 turn towards um serious uh serious drama that you know that they're that they're looking for um or whether there is uh whether there's uh, a player who really enjoys their character being drawn out and so you know you need to make sure that the campaign is sort of laced with these moments which allow the character which allow that player to, to hook on and draw out that character bit by bit mm -hmm. um and so like a lot of it is what well, one thing i really love doing is um is when a character when going through backstories with uh players for their characters making sure that they leave all names and locations blank uh and then giving them those notes because generally they're not actually invested in whether their like uh, their old sergeant is called like Phil, it must be Phil, Johnny, or I won't. Yeah, like whether their old sergeant is called uh, Phil or like Damien West. But uh, wait, no, Damien West is a Batman character, isn't he? Whatever. Um, but you, but you know that Sergeant Damien is also in a different character's backstory, and if they're connected in that way, then that's going to set up. Mm -hmm. These these conflict and drama points further down the line, so so much of it is. Uh, sorry, I'm getting, I'm, the sun has shifted and I've got a lot of light on me suddenly. Um, so much of it is learning your players and deciding what and like what what emotions do they want to explore and giving them that that. Right. Uh, that's obviously only for private games. In performance, it changes uh it changes significantly again because I, there are some things people though. i think it's applicable in well, performance it is it's applicable but there are not... some things people might not be comfortable exploring in a performative space that they are sure. I, would, I would say it's less about exploring the depths of your players on performance side and it's a bit more about i know that if i provide this juicy theme mm, yes mm -hmm. on it but that's a yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a, a in some ways a shallower but broader angle on what you're talking about yeah absolutely um, it's Damian Wayne, by the way. Damian Wayne. Ah. Is Damian it's... West a thing? I'm. Quite... Well, Adam West played but Batman. Adam West Maybe. Damian Wayne. Maybe. <laughs> Although Damian Wayne played by Adam West, where no oh. one acknowledges that it's Adam West, would be an interesting take. I would watch that. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, we'll 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 get back to you on that. Uh, thank you for your pitch, uh, Mr. Newell. Um, <laughs> we've obviously we've got a lot of production uh, aspects we need to go over, but we'll 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 get back to you with our final decision. About the sixteenth power was Adam West all along. <laughs> oh no! Uh, uh, on that note, um, thank you for joining me to today, this afternoon for you, this morning for me. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and participating in Virtual HorrorCon and letting me ask you a bunch of questions. I hope um, it's been loads of fun. No, it's, it's, been, it's been genuinely a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Um, what do you have coming up that you want to talk about and where can people find you online? After you, John. Do you want to? Oh, uh, 
So obviously, season five of the Magnus Archives is uh, has started last Thursday. Uh, so uh, second episode will be dropping this Thursday, and it'll be going right through till the end. Um, I have. You can also find my uh, uh, tabletop uh, work uh, at MacGuffin and Company. Uh, I run that with uh, Sasha Sienna, who uh, was actually on a panel on horror and comedy uh, yesterday. Uh, and we do sort of uh, small systems, micro settings. Um, look us up on itch, Patreon, um, all the sort of thing. It's mcguffinandcompany.com. Uh, and uh, I've got a book coming out in August uh, called 13 Stories, S-T-O-R-E-Y-S, because it's a it's a, it's a high-rise office, but it's, it's very funny. Um, but uh, so, yeah, uh, if pre-order, keep a lookout for that, because uh, I'm very, very excited because it's my first book. Awesome. Alex? From my perspective, um, very straightforward because I have literally no life. Um, www.rustyquill.com. Um, that contains links to all of our shows and pretty much everything that I'm doing at this point is company related anyway. Um, obviously, uh, given the, the nature of your audience, the Magnus Archives is a good one to hit up for the horror side. Uh, Rusty Quill Gaming Podcast is our gaming focused podcast. We do both a long play, actual play. Um, which has been running a while now, but we also do a lot of um, sort of one-off specials where we examine different systems. Um, if people want a taster, I'd suggest probably maybe starting on one of the specials. And then if yeah. they like what they, if they like, I would they... recommend the Dusk Hollow PD special. Would you, Johnny? Yeah, um, I, the guy, the guy who runs it, who does the GMing, is a. I, I don't know. There's just something about his voice that just makes me feel safe. You know. <laughs> So yeah, Johnny Johnny has run a couple of games that are in that feed as well. Yep. Um, and additionally, I'll, I'll I'll keep drawing attention to it, which is that uh, once a year we do a, a charity event called Rusty Quill Gaming and Giving, mm-hmm. um, which is where we get a lot of um, personalities or our Q cast and so on um, into a room. And it used to be playing with a live audience where we play some games and stream it out. Obviously, with the current situation, we're going to have to be losing the live audience part. Mm-hmm. But that means that we're leaning into it even harder as a thing that people can access from their own homes. Um, and I know that previous iterations of that should be coming available soon um, in terms of things to watch. But yeah, it's it's a good one of it's a good example of the kind of things that we're talking about in terms of, you know, how games can help people, how horror games as well have a place to, yeah. to play in, in people's lives. Yep. And I, I just thoroughly recommend people check them out. And um, yeah, for any information that you ever need to do with Rusty Quill, make the website your first port of call. Fantastic. Thank you everyone for tuning in for this wonderful interview. Johnny, Alex, thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast. Your attention has been noted. You can find us online at GehennaGaming.com, on Twitter at GehennaGaming, twitch.tv slash GehennaGaming, and patreon.com slash GehennaGaming.